Cyberwork is celebrating its next major milestone. As of July 2020, Cyberwork has had over a quarter of a million listeners. We're so grateful to all of you that have watched the videos on our YouTube page, commented on live release feeds, left ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast platform, redeemed bonus offers, or just listened in the comfort of your own home. Thank you to all of you. Because our listenership is growing so quickly and because Cyberwork has big plans for the second half of 2020 and beyond, we want to make sure that we're giving you what you want to hear. That's right, we want to hear specifically from you. So please go to www.infosecinstitute.com slash survey. That's www and the numeral two, www.infosecinstitute.com slash survey. The survey is just a few questions and it won't take you that long, but it will really help us to know where you are in your cybersecurity career and what topics and types of information you enjoy hearing on this podcast. Again, that's www infosecinstitute.com slash survey. Uh, please respond today and you could be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's www.infosecinstitute.com slash survey. Thanks once again for listening. And now on with the show. Welcome to this week's episode of the Cyberwork with InfoSec podcast. Each week, I sit down with a different industry thought leader, and we discuss the latest cybersecurity trends, how those trends are affecting the work of InfoSec professionals, while offering tips for those trying to break in or move up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Pranshu Bajpai is a name that may look familiar to longtime readers of the InfoSec Resources website. Uh, if you only know InfoSec from the CyberWork podcast, I'd encourage you to check out resources.infosecinstitute.com. Uh, where you will see thousands of articles that our authors have written over a span of about 10 years uh, on all aspects of cybersecurity certification, security awareness, skills training, lab walkthroughs, career development, and a ton more. We'll have two to three new articles on the site every day. So if you're just a podcast listener, I hope you'll stop there and uh, diversify your journey. So as mentioned, Pranshu is a recent graduate who earned his PhD in computer science and uh, is an, has been an InfoSec resources contributor for many years. Uh, he recently graduated with a PhD in computer science and engineering from Michigan State University and is a security architect at Motorola Solutions. So we're going to talk today about ransomware and career uh, opportunities as a security architect. Pranshu Bajpai has research interests in system securities, malware, digital forensics, and threat intelligence. He has authored several papers for reputed magazines and journals, including IEEE, uh, Elsevier, ACM, and ISACA. His work has been featured in various media outlets, including Scientific American, The Conversation, Salon, Business Standard, Michigan Radio, GCN, GovTech, and others. He is an active speaker at conferences and has spoken at APWG eCrime, DEFCON, GERCON, B-Sides, and TourCon, among many others. He obtained his PhD in computer science from Michigan State University and an MS in information security from Indian Institute of Information Technology. Pranshu, welcome to CyberWork today. Hey, Chris. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we always like to start the show by getting, uh, you know, a little baseline of our guests uh, origin story. So when did you first get interested in tech and specifically in cybersecurity? Yeah, so uh, there was no definitive point for me where mm -hmm. I turned into tech and security in particular. Yeah, uh, but I do remember a few incidents um, uh, back in back when I was in school, um, ninth, 10th grade, I, I was into reading books, different kinds of books. And uh, one of the books that I accidentally stumbled upon was called The Little Black Book of Computer Viruses. That's oh, a great wow. title for a book. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I was uh, in ninth grade at the time. I had all the time in the world to read. 
and it was just the right book to read at the time because it, didn't, it wasn't technically dense, right. but it contained enough detail for me to get really interested in these, uh, you know, mystical arts of, yeah. uh, of viruses and, uh, you know, hacking and all of that. So, so that definitely helped. And from, from that point on, um, uh, there were other resources. I started paying more attention to the hacker culture, you know, open source uh, technology interested me, the Linux operating system. I discovered, you know, one thing after the other. And then before I, uh, before I knew it, I finally realized that I want to work in security. Yeah, and that's, that's awesome. how I started. Yeah, I, yeah I, I love those kind of books where you find out that, you know, it's, it's just enough to get you hooked, but not enough to overwhelm you like that. That's right. So how did you um, come to write for InfoSec Resources? I know you worked with my colleague, Rob Rodriguez. Uh, how did you find out about the site or how did uh, the site find out about you? So um, I was getting my master's uh, in information security at the time. And uh, this was many years ago. And um, there was a lot of theoretical component to my classes and I, you know, to some of my classes at least. And I used to get bogged down with this theory in my head. And so one of my favorite things to do was, uh, was at the end of the day, go back and uh, do practical experiments, you know, spin up a, a, a VM, uh, you know, a, a vulnerable VM and then in my own environment and then try to break into it, you know, a Metasploit and all of those uh, things. And uh, then I used to blog about, blog about it on my own blog. Uh, yeah. with, with, with time, my blog caught attention and ultimately an InfoSec um, Institute staff member uh, reached out to me and asked me to contribute. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I contributed an article and it was great. I, I love the freedom um, of you know, just coming up with my own topics uh, as long as they're in they're relevant to security and they're practical and uh yeah i loved contributing there over then I, I contributed several articles there at the, at the mm -hmm. site actually so yeah Thanks. that was fun yeah yeah uh and like i say we have a we have a whole um writer's pool that uh that turn in things every every week and every day i was just editing some articles to that'll go up in august so uh you know also if you're if you're a listener and you uh you know have writing proficiency feel free to get in touch with us through the site as well. We'd love to hear from you and, and you might, might be able to be uh, on the, on the site as a, as a contributor. So um, I wanted to talk to you today about, because you know, cyber work, the big push here is helping people to get started in cybersecurity and who don't necessarily know where to start or don't know what the next steps are in their career. So for listeners who might think that you're fresh out of college, I want to point out that you've been working in security for some time between undergraduate studies and your recent master's degree. So I guess what I wanted to know is what are you, what were you specifically trying to achieve in getting your PhD in computer science from Michigan State, um, you know, before returning back to the uh, business sector? So there's a strong, a strong analytical component that is an integral part of any doctoral degree. Mm -hmm. um, I began my PhD with the objective of owning my critical thinking skills and exploring the truth that depth of certain areas in security. Because as we know, so we've all looked at the 10 domains of CISSP and that's, it, it's everywhere from physical security to cryptography and everything right. in between, you know, network. And I was doing that for, for a long time. And um, it came to a point where I wanted to really truly understand uh, something in depth to the point where, you know, I could get a PhD in that, uh, in that area. So, so that, 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 that was definitely um, a, a, a motiva motivating factor for me uh, going in. Do you have a, a sense of how 
you know, the, the addition of a PhD like this has, has changed your job prospects. I mean, obviously you're, you seem to be happy with Motorola, but like, like what, what sort of doors does, does a graduate level degree like this open uh, for a cybersecurity professional? Right. So that's a great question. Um, in terms of career prospects, it definitely opens up more research opportunities, both in academia and industry. Right. Uh, some research opportunities in industry will explicitly ask for a PhD. Um, so, so it definitely opens those doors. Um, talking about industry in particular, um, there are a, f- uh, there are a few, uh, op- like I said, there's a few doors that open up right away. Um, I could have definitely been, I could have definitely been a security architect without getting a PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the benefit is more intangible yeah. in that there's elements of my PhD that prepared me for my role today um, uh, and allowed a smooth transition uh, into a security architect role as a, you know, um, because I I play the role of both, uh, I play both tactical and strategist role uh, Mm -hmm. during my, um, uh, during my work as a security architect and especially the strategic part, uh, the PhD definitely helps in. Okay. So uh, you, you mentioned that this is a pretty specifically useful thing if you're going to go into a research capacity. Is this something that you're looking to pursue as well? Are you looking to, you know, because I believe your, your emphasis was on ransomware. Are you, are you doing sort of ransomware, sort of research level uh, study of things like ransomware right now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a component of my work. And uh, even at Motorola Solutions, I'm preparing, uh, I'm pursuing that. Okay. And uh, so, for example, if, you know, one thing that comes to mind that a PhD would directly help you in, in an industry is like if you're contributing to IPR, if you're, mm. if you're making, if you're genera- generating patent applications, that process right. is very similar to writing for a scientific journal. So that's something that comes to mind right away that helps me, uh, where PhD helps me in, uh, uh, in, in the industry. Okay. So when we spoke earlier, and I just mentioned it just now, but you said that, that ransomware is, is probably the main focus of your study, I believe. So could you tell me a little bit about what you learned about ransomware in this academic context? And you know, how deeply have you gone into this topic? And, and sort of what was your specialized area within ransomware? Is there a certain aspect of it that uh, really sort of attracted you? So uh, speaking in the academic context, there's a lot of new things I learned. Um, one of them is uh, actually, funny you, you speak of academic context. Uh, in, in 1996, there was an academic paper uh, out in an IEEE uh, uh, conference where, which, which talked about where, where the authors, Young and Young, talked about cryptoviruses that will deploy cryptographic libraries on, uh, on hosts to perform unauthorized encryption and demand a ransom uh, in order to provide you with the decryption key. So they predicted the whole thing back in 96 and this wasn't a and ransomware didn't really start to grow around uh, until 2005 2006 it's is, is when it started to yeah. uh, you know grow but so so that's so that's always interesting is uh when when a- academics predict uh, some of these things right. ahead in time um reading about it in the academic context i noticed that there's papers that have done studies on on large samples of ransomware and have discovered uh, for example, that 92% of them are not effective, right? Uh, because cryptography is hard and, uh, and cyber criminals make mistakes all the time. Right. And, uh, and a lot of the times they're just scareware where they lock your screen and expect you to pay the money when they haven't really done any encryption in the background. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you take away all of that fluff, then the 8% are the truly troubling ones. And so there's a lot of noise in the cybercrime underground. And, you know, we, we, we get this 
we, we get into this mode of thinking that uh, cyber criminals have descended from the heavens in terms of their uh, skills, but but that's not true. You know, they make a lot of mistakes and yeah. widely varied too, in terms of competencies, you could have just some dork, you know, who is just wants to be a tough guy versus like huge networks and people who are really well done. And then you have the sort of, you know, ransomware as a service where you're just paying mm-hmm. someone else to basically give you a, a, you know, a setup and, and then you just kind of run it like that. Yep. A lot of noise, a lot of script kitties out there. Right. So in our, in our pre-show emails, you, you said that uh, you were specifically interested in talking about some of the intricacies of the latest ransomware attacks and noted that there's, uh, quote, certain parts of the ransomware kill chain that are often overlooked and that you'd like to draw attention to. So could you tell me a little more about these, uh, these concepts? Right. So uh, one of the things about the, the ransomware kill chain is that it's comprised of several elements. Now, a kill chain would be a path that our adversary takes in order to attain their malicious objective. At the end of the day, we have to remember, like I was saying, um, uh, our adversaries are people and uh, they have certain constraints that they operate under. And uh, if we recognize what those constraints are, in other words, if you recognize what elements of the kill chain exist, uh, removing one of these elements debilitates their entire attack chain. And, um, and so to, to that end, there is, for example, components that people miss of the attack chain. Some, some are very well discussed, uh, while some are not. For example, in order to have leverage over the victim, they need to maintain um, a route to the decryption keys that, is, uh, that only they control. If there's an alternative path to the decryption keys, it doesn't matter how you get there. Uh, if, if you're, for example, there are key escrow systems out there that are making copies of keys as they're being generated mm. as a protection. Uh, if, if you're able to make copies of the keys as they're being generated by the ransomware on your machine, then you can use those keys for decrypting your files at a later point. Now, there's, uh, people don't like the idea of key escrow systems being on their, uh, on their computer, uh, but there's, there's ways that, they can, that can be done safely. Uh, and you would, and only the 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 victim uh, or the, the the owner would be in control of these uh, of these decryption keys. Uh, so the the point is that there's 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 parts of the kill chain that are often overlooked. Um, another another part that is uh, overlooked is that you know, for example, file enumeration is a big part uh, of of discovering files of interest on the host. Okay. And, um, and if, if they, they, they cannot encrypt what, what they cannot find. So, um, right. and if you can restore your data from a backup, of course, backups are the easy answer to the problem of ransomware. Um, but uh, uh, backups are, are never the answer because right. uh, backups are not properly implemented. Um, backups are impartial and depending simply on backups can... Uh, ha- has proven to be bad over the course of the previous decade where ransomware have been hugely successful. Sure. So, okay. So I want to move from the theoretical into the practical here. So mm-hmm. um, based on what you're saying here, what are your thoughts on the first steps that one should take if, you know, in the worst case scenario, you get hit by ransomware. So you see the red red screen and you realize something has happened. Like what's the absolute first step you should take or, you know, more importantly, should not take? Yeah, so so I've been asked that before, and that's that's not that's a tricky question to answer. So in terms mm-hmm. of the computer, 
if you can hibernate it, that's great. Uh, that is because if you hibernate the computer and you're lucky enough to be hit by a ransomware that's using the same encryption key to encrypt all files, in that case, that encryption key is in memory and can be theoretically recovered from memory um, at a later point in time, and that would help you decrypt your files. However, the truth is that most ransomware out there today, most advanced ransomware out there today will deploy uh, multiple encryption keys in encrypting mm. the files. And that means that there's a file encryption loop. And within that loop, they're generating a fresh key to encrypt every file. And then within that loop, at the, when the file encryption is complete, they will destroy that key and then generate a new one. So in this case, if you hibernate uh, then you've, and you recover the key, then you've already recovered the key that was being used to encrypt that specific file. Uh, and so that doesn't really do you any good. Right. Um, if, if uh, I mean, it's also, if, if, if hibernation is not possible, shut down the computer, definitely disconnect it from the network at the right. very least. Oh, yeah. uh, so that if it's trying to propagate laterally through the network, um, as it, we were all taken by surprise when WannaCry came out and spread like a worm uh, on yeah. the network by exploiting a vulnerability. So definitely disconnect the machine from the network so you can prevent, uh, you know, the person next to you from getting infected right. as well. There's a real um, speed issue here network. Like as soon as it happens, you got to start, you got to jump into action immediately. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and one thing I would add to that is uh, if you're part of an organization and this is your work computer, definitely call your SOC team, uh, yeah. you, you know, your security operations center, your security yeah. team, IT team, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, they would give you the rest of the steps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, only, definitely. It's only going to be worse if you try to hide it. That's right. So, um, so I guess it's sort of connected to that. What are some, what are some of the most common and, and, and bad mistakes that ransomware victims are making that you think are preventable? Well, like, like I've said before, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is uh, backups are, we have to come to terms with the fact that our backups are just not as good as we think they are. Um, and it, it's because in practice, in theory, backups work very well, but in practice, what I've seen is backups in order for them to work, they have to be well tested. They have to be taken frequently enough. They have to be complete. They cannot be impartial backups of parts of your data mm -hmm. and, and they have to be stored at an offsite location that is secure when the event, uh, when the event occurs, they, you know, the, it, your backups, if they're infected as well, and if they're encrypted as well, then that does, does you no good. Right. So there's uh, so one thing is for sure, we have to maintain the quality of our backups and they have to, we have to test uh, the quality of our backups. And um, the next thing um, I've noticed is uh, many people make the mistake of depending solely on um, identification, protection and detection. And those okay. are critical components in the defense cycle. However, there's also response and uh, recovery. And, and, and those are important as well. So defense in depth demands that you have all of these components uh, as, as part of a multi-layered defense. Uh, depending too much on just protections can lead you down the wrong path. And, um, and ultimately, you have to assume that the adversary is already in. Now, what can right. you do from this point forward? Okay, so yeah, I guess let's let's talk about that a little bit uh, in, in terms of like what what are these? You know, you, you mentioned these in sort of in sort of a general sense. You know, you have the um, you know the defense steps, and then 
the sort of response steps. So, so what, what, what would be the, the response steps and the sort of like backup steps and so forth? What, what are the, what are the best practice versions of these things? Right. So, uh, in terms of backups, like I've said, it's, it's important to ensure that they are quality backups. And by quality, I mean they are well-tested. Um, first of all, you have to maintain uh, complete backups. Uh, you, you, they cannot be partial. This, this part of the data is backed up, and, but that part is not. Um, that, that, that cannot be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be taken frequently enough. That means that if you're hit by a ransomware today and the backup was taken a month ago or a week ago, you've just lost a week's worth of data. Mm-hmm. So they have to be taken frequently. Uh, they, they have to be kept at an offsite location somewhere where if, if the ransomware hits this location right here, the backups are safe in another part, um, uh, in another physical location. So that is a, a very important component to it. And then they have to be well tested, which means um, you can just uh, try to recover, uh, recover and try to restore from backups when the event occurs, you should practice it too a, a few times. So, so that's, th- th- that's a very important part. Um, in terms of, uh, I- I'm sorry, I forgot what, what your other question was. Oh, I, I guess I was, I was just trying to get a, a sense of like what, the, what all the actual sort of steps along the way are. But I guess that, that sort of leads me to my, my next question, which is to say, I mean, you're, the way you're speaking of it, like it, it sounds like, your 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 opinion is that you're you you're going with the idea that you're never actually going to like speak to or re- like you're 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 talking about ransomware in terms of like we're not going to negotiate we're not going to pay we're not going to do any of that we're going forward with the idea that we've been hit and all we're doing is we're going to just let the time run right the files get encrypted and then you're just going to go with the backup is that the case right uh, protections need to be in place uh, so mm-hmm. we all know that we cannot do without detections and protections and identification so that that's a very important part but what i what i'm what i'm trying to get at is that more people are are, are focused on the protections part and less people are focused on the response and recovery parts sure uh, we have to we have to think about all of these together yeah so so yeah um uh, protections need to be there as well yeah right so yeah but i'm saying like you know, there was a certain point, I feel like, and certainly with some of the healthcare systems where people did pay the ransom and, and stuff like that. But the way I'm hearing it from you, like that's, that's just not a viable option, right? Well, paying the ransom, uh, I mean, unfortunately, the way it stands, if you're hit by the ransomware and all your files are encrypted and they haven't made a critical error in their implementation, in that case, your only path to recovery and you don't have backups and your only path to recovery is unfortunately to pay the ransomware. So right. I understand when victims have to pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we do not advise it because right. it invigorates the ransomware as a yes. service industry underground. I mean, it gives them more fun to, to go yep. and research uh, more and come up with better attacks next time. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that, that, that's definitely true. And, and second, there's no guarantee of file decryption even after the ransom payment in, in some cases. Now, you, you also mentioned you know, that there's, there's a whole sort of range of potential ransomware attacks from like an actual one in which your files are locked versus, you know, some real Bush league stuff where it's just some script mm-hmm. kid who, you know, froze your screen and it looks like a ransomware attack, but it's, it's not really like, do you, do you have sort of different, you know, do you have like sort of a checklist of sort of like figuring out like what you got hit by? Yeah. So as part of, um, as part of, uh, reverse engineering, uh, you know, and, and once, when somebody gets hit, it's part of incident analysis, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you look at the files, you look at the sample. If you're able to isolate the sample, you look at the sample, you go into the guts of the sample, you know, and I'm talking about reverse engineering over here. You look at the assembly. You, you can figure out, you can pretty, pretty much locate encryption components quickly. Uh, they are standard crypto calls. For example, uh, many ransomware out there will try to contact the, your, your resident Windows resident crypto API, and they'll make you know, the crypt, crypt acquire context, crypt encrypt, crypt gen key, all those familiar calls. They're, they're, now, they're now generating cryptographic material. They're using it to encrypt the files. You look at the file itself uh, after the encryption, uh, you know, after the ransomware has hit. And I mean, you can look at the random data. So yes, things are truly encrypted at this point. And a study of the sample indicates that this was actually a well-written ransomware. Um, there are efforts out there. I, um, I want to bring attention to, for example, the No More Ransom project. Yes, um, I was going to bring that, that up. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so where several entities come together and take a look at the ransomware sample. And then if there are any implementation flaws uh, in the sample, then they will provide you the decryption tool. They will provide the victims with the yep. decryption tool. So, th so those are great efforts. Yes. However, you know, in the underground, we have to remember there as an industry, they're growing. So yeah. you were talking about ransomware as a service. That's a very big problem um, because today, if I'm not good at writing code myself and I'm, I'm definitely not good at writing crypto code myself, if that happens to be the case, I can still go and pay somebody to write that code for me and I can just act as the ransomware operator in that case. I don't have to be the ransomware developer. So this is a highly synergistic environment where everybody focuses on their skills Somebody is very good at writing the code. Somebody is very good at finding exploits to propagate yep. the threat. And, yeah. um, and ultimately, the impact is that uh, they're growing as an industry. They're learning from their past mistakes. You find a flaw in the previous variants, they come up with new variants, and this time they've removed the flaw. And, um, and ultimately, in the absence of flaws, even experts cannot help you decrypt because these are standard algorithms. So. Right. So now what, 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 in your opinion, and you've, you've mentioned some aspects of this, but, but give me a full big picture solution, you know, for making ransomware as small of a problem as possible. It's obviously it's on the rise, but you know, is, is there some combination in your mind of, of tools, awareness, change of business, change of, uh, you know, um, security practices or backup practices? Like what, what, what is your sort of like optimal combination of all of these things that would make ransomware, you know, a much lower sort of order of, of danger? Right. So you're talking about what would be my order of, uh, of actions. And, 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 and mostly I just sort of what, what are the things you would like to see change sort of industry wide that would make ransomware, you know, a much lower threat? Like what are, what right. are all the sort of like ideal implementations? Right. Uh, so in those terms, uh, first of all, know what your assets are. What are you trying to protect? So the, the data in this case uh, that the ransomware will go after, you cannot leave data unprotected because you're not protecting what you don't know exists in your environment um, or is exposed in your environment. So know where all of your assets are. What are you trying to protect? So that's the identification part of it. Um, then have detections in place. And this, these are your standard uh, malware detection capabilities um, uh, and protection capabilities. So protections would, you know... All, all your network policies and all of that, uh, you know, stopping the threat before it gets in, you know, all the protections in place. And these are standard. And moving on to the detection part, uh, there, is, there are constant improvements out there. They're incremental. They're not revolutionary, but there's definitely incremental improvements in 
ransomware detection technology out there. Right. So make sure you're constantly taking advantage of that. Uh, and you're not, you haven't fallen behind on that. So, so that means you're protected. And after that, as I've discussed before, response and recovery procedures. Right. Okay, well, you tried all of that, did not work. Unfortunately, they still got in. And that's, that's, that's one of the major problems is there's a lot of targeted attacks out there today. And, and that is another big problem. Because with targeted attacks, they are now, these are advanced adversaries that are carefully selecting um, targets uh, for, uh, for a variety of reasons. Right. But then that also affords them manual reconnaissance. If they're doing, and as opposed to a spray and pray kind of attack that WannaCry did, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if they're doing manual reconnaissance, then they're more likely to find a way in. They're going to find and, somebody, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, it just takes one exposed endpoint somewhere. Right. And, um, and once they're in and they're doing manual reconnaissance, they will laterally propagate silently. And then uh, you'll, you'll notice the ransom note appear on all machines at the same time. So, so it's, it's very important to have the correct protections and everything. However, unfortunately, if they still get in, there needs to exist a, a, a response and recovery strategy that is well tested. Right. So that's a that's combination of all these things. Yes. Yes. Very important. So, um, I, I, in in accordance with us being cyber work, I want to talk a little bit about your work life here. What do you what do you do as a security architect for Motorola? Can you sort of walk me through your average day of tasks and assignments? You know, for people who are like, I've never heard of what a security architect is. What what exactly do you do as a security architect? Right. So um, as part of security architect, I play several roles within the same day for my organization. And uh, and if I had to give you a high level um, uh, hierarchy, I would say my roles range from tactical and strategic. Um, so, so as, 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 as tactical, for example, um, an example of, uh, of a security setup that I'm working on right now is we're, 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 so we're bringing up a new instance of a next generation firewall in the, in the cloud environment. And, uh, and this would reside on a virtual machine scale set, let's say. And then, you know, we're now in the process of also, so we have to, we're also in the process of onboarding new applications on this firewall. We have to set up all the routing and log uh, and routing procedures within the cloud environment. So you can see how the network knowledge comes into the picture, the cloud, mm-hmm. latest cloud technology comes into the picture. Right. You have to know the firewall as well. And then, once you've, once you've got the logs coming into the next-gen firewall, you also have to route the logs to go in your SIM instance where they will be ingested and processed and indexed. So then we also have the, uh, you know, uh, 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 for example, the Elasticsearch stack coming into the picture where you're, uh, you know, uh, ingesting the logs produced by the firewall ultimately. Uh, in the firewall, if you want advanced features, you're doing SSL decryption. So a, a lot of uh, technologies come into play. Mm-hmm. And so tactical work, so my tactical work would include uh, sitting down and not just designing this architecture, um, you know, putting it down on paper. Okay, well, this is, the, this is what the flow is going to look like. This is where we'll collect the logs. This is where the logs are going to go. Yep. But also... Uh, we believe in walking, you know, we call it walk the walk as well. You can't just design the blueprint and then give it to somebody else to implement. You know, you have to then sit down and try to implement it. And when you try to implement it, you come across these little issues that, sh- that you never thought about when you were designing mm-hmm. um, 
at, at a higher level. Right. And so then, you know, you don't just um, uh, leave it to the DevOps engineers. You actually realize the struggle they go through when you're, when they're implementing something <laughs> yeah. that you designed at a higher level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're so seeing that, the, the flaws before they do. That's right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we work side by side with, with DevOps engineers uh, mm-hmm. at this point. We've, we've designed the blueprint, but we also will take the tools and I'll start hammering away at this, uh, you know, at, in, on this build. So the, 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 that kind of work can get really uh, tactical. Um, on, on the other hand, I also play strategic role where, uh, you know, and this is more of the design component. So this is more architecture um, within the constraints of our environments and the technology that is available today. What is the best series of solutions to a problem we're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, what, and, and, and when you implement this and when you're thinking about this, what is the long-term impacts of the solution you're proposing? Because you can't just think about what's going to happen today, but you also have to think about strategically about what's going to happen how, in a year or two years from now. Right. right? Uh, you, you, you direct, for example, you, you're trying to direct uh, the huge volume of firewall logs at an, uh, you know, uh, on an event hubs instance that will buckle under pressure at some point, right? So, you know, not right now maybe, but somewhere down the line as they're onboarding more applications. So, so you have to think about the long-term impacts of your solution as well. Uh, it's important not to get pigeonholed uh, when considering the solution to a problem. Um, and so think not just of your team uh, and the problem at hand, but how would the solution affect other teams and the organization as a whole. So, yeah. so that's, that's more of a strategic role. And, you know, some, some of the other examples would be like, I also get involved in purchase decisions. Uh, okay. You know, if, you know, considering the purchase of future technologies. So, uh, and, and, you know, there's business, uh, you know, teams that will get involved in these discussions as well. But while they're, they might be considering pricing and other things, you still have to keep focus on the technology. Is, the, is, the, is there really quality technology right there uh and then you have to identify those elements as well so that um you know everything goes smoothly somewhere down the line so those are some of the tasks that i do as as part of security architecture so um you know you you mentioned that you don't necessarily need a graduate degree to to be a security architect or a malware engineer and things like that so could you just give us for people who uh, you know have heard what you said and, and thought security architect sounds pretty interesting malware analysts sound pretty interesting like what sorts of types of learning or skills do you, do you think people need, you know, like what, what personalities, you know, are best suited to this kind of thing? Like what are, where do you get started in, in, in learning this kind of thing? What are sort of the, 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 the steps along the way that you would recommend to get you towards a career as a security architect? I think that number one, I would say is intelligence. Uh, you know, that's that's one of the first things uh, we would look at in a security architect, and that's the first one of the first things that will help you. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, you know, I just described an example scenario where there's multiple technologies at play, and right. and most of the times um, you wouldn't have previous experience uh, with this technology. So it's literally you you they're, they're, you know you you're working on this project. These issues come up the best way to solve this is with this latest technology, you will not have previous experience with this technology. How quickly can you learn and implement it um, and, and use it and determine if it's, if that's the, that's the solution you want to go with. So intelligence definitely helps. Right. Um, and the other thing I would say is passion because otherwise you're going to get overwhelmed pretty quickly. 
a lot of being, things are being thrown at you. At, it's, it's like drinking through a fire hose. And yeah. if, you, if you're not passionate about it, sure. then, um, then it, 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 you might fall behind. Yeah, and you're not going to enjoy being hit by a fire hose if you're not interested <laughs> in being hit by a fire hose. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> so those, are the, those are the two things I would say uh, that are important in being a security architect. It okay. is nice to have an educational background in computing. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm going to go ahead and be bold enough to say that it's not, it's not something that is right. absolutely essential. I mean, it's you not like you need to have a degree yet. You mentioned that you know that you require it requires sort of a baseline knowledge of everything from sort of networking to cloud to firewall. I mean, can you speak mm-hmm. to that? Like, what are some of the the sort of like concrete sort of background that you should have to get you to this point? Because you know, obviously, it, it's sort of like a series of steps. Like, you need to know this, so you can know this, so you can know this, and so forth. Right, right. So, so to so, to put it in context of something we already kind of know is think of the CISSP degree, for example. Now. Right. It doesn't go into the absolute details. You want to know every single thing about every single thing, but it still kind of give you, gives you idea about the different domains it gives that you a exist. Sense of the scope of it, yeah. Right, and, and you, you know about cryptography. Today, if you're working with the firewall on this, so you know, following the same example, now the application logs are coming in to enable the advanced security features in the firewall, you have to perform SSL decryption so you can really see what's going on. Now, to perform SSL decryption, there's problems with TLS because TLS 1.3, the browser wants this, but, but you don't know what TLS is. Right. Then, then that blocks you right away. Yep. So then you have to go figure out what TLS is. Um, and so, so that's why, so that then your networking knowledge comes into picture, right? So you already mm-hmm. knew about the, you know, the, the TLS and concepts of that nature. You also know a little bit about crypt, crypto. You, so you, you, you whip out open SSL right away and you start doing things. So that's where you, some of your crypto knowledge helps you too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and as, as you're building routes in these firewalls and all of that, you, you, your, your networking knowledge helps you. And so think about that in, in terms of that, the, the, the CISSP domain where right. all of those components help. So it's, you don't have to go in absolute depth, but you need to know uh, knowledge from all of those areas. Okay. So as we wrap up today, where do you see the study of and defense against malware going in the next couple of years? Obviously you're kind of on the, the front line in terms of researching it and so forth. Like what, what do you, what do you see as kind of the next steps that are happening that are going to sort of take the fight to them? I think that uh, in terms of defenses and protections, we're going to see more machine learning based approaches, mm. uh, uh, you know, going forward. One of the primary problems with machine learnings in the past, in detecting malware have been a large, large amount of false positives. And um, you, you can't, you know, there's, there's this thing called an alert fatigue where you can't send a, a user an alert every five minutes. They're just going to begin ignoring uh, the alerts. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, so that's been really challenging. However, it's, it's, it's going to, it, it, I've definitely seen improvements in mm-hmm. that technology. And, uh, and so that's, Signature-based detection can only go so far in, in protection against novel threats that have been previously unseen, but still share some characteristics, some base characteristics with uh, previously known threats. Uh, machine learning can really help with that. So um, also end users have more compute power uh, these days than they did 10 years ago. So sure. uh, th- that also helps. So, um, so I, I definitely see uh, that uh, growing. Um, I think... Uh, we're going to see a lot more research being done to improve 
the state of response and recovery. I think more and more organizations and people are realizing the importance of yeah. response and recovery strategies right. and assuming that the adversary is in, what can we do? So definitely see that improving as well. Okay. Uh, one last very important question today. If our listeners want to hear, uh, learn more about Pranchu uh, Bajpai, where can they go online? Do you uh, have a LinkedIn? Do you have a, is your blog still going? Uh, where can they find more? Yeah. Uh, so I have this website called miroutyet.com, which is okay. also my hacker handle. Miroutyet.com? Miroutyet, yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's more information available over there and uh, okay. my posts and all the blogs. Um, so yeah, that's Great. where. Okay. Pranchu, thank you again for joining us today. It was good to catch up. Thanks for having me, Chris. Enjoy the talk. Uh, And thank you all for listening and watching. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more on our YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com and type in cyberwork with InfoSec to check out a collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Just search cyberwork with InfoSec in your favorite podcast catcher. And for those of you who've been leaving ratings and reviews, I really appreciate it. I hope you will consider to do that. And uh, if you can, tell a friend. Uh, As mentioned at the top of the show, we want to hear from you what you think about uh, the show and what you want to hear more of on it. So if you could go to www2, that's www in the numeral 2.infosecinstitute.com slash survey, you'll find a short set of questions about your listening habits and interests in the show. If you take the survey, you can be eligible to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's www.infosecinstitute.com slash survey. Thank you once again to uh, Pranshu Bajpai, and thank you all again for watching and listening. We will speak to you next week.